Our Father, as we come to Your Word, we remember that it is capable of effecting great change in us. And so we pray that You would stir conviction in our hearts as we look at some parables today that deal with a very difficult subject. But we pray that You would not only bring conviction, but that You would bring wisdom and strength for every purpose You have ordained. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 4. As we continue our study in the parables, we're actually going to be looking at two parables today out of uh, Mark chapter 4. Two very short but very important parables for us to understand. And the subject at hand here today is evangelism. Evangelism. You know, it's really easy when you look at the world today to just be absolutely smitten with discouragement. As Christians, we have this basic understanding that there are really only two types of people, right? There are children of Adam, and then there are children of God, adopted by grace through faith in Christ. And of course, Scripture makes all of this abundantly clear for us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us about how prior to our adoption uh, as, as children of the Lord, we were, to use Paul's term, children of wrath. We were still in Adam, which meant that we were spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. We had no concern for spiritual matters. It was impossible, in fact, according to, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it was impossible for us to even understand, much less apply spiritual matters. We were born into the world in both a material sense, we were born on the planet earth, and in a spiritual sense. We were born into the system that rebels against God. That is, in our blood, it's our, our very nature to rebel against God. That's what it means to be a child of Adam. And then we have children of God. By grace, God makes us His children. He adopts us as children. And again, Paul discusses this in Ephesians chapter 2, or Romans chapter 5 is another place. I mean, really, you can find this theme in every single one of the letters that Paul wrote in one way or another. But in these two places, Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 5, I feel that it's really spelled out clearly. In Romans chapter 5, we're told that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, as children of Adam... While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so as children of God, we've been assigned with a great task. We call it the Great Commission. You find it in Matthew chapter 28. The Great Commission. The essence of the Great Commission is that we've been sent by the Lord into the world to preach the Gospel and to make disciples. And when you think about it, if, if, you, if you just step back and consider the size of this task, it is terribly intimidating. You, you see that it's not only a great task, but that it's actually absolutely impossible if it's to be done in our own strength. How in the world are we supposed to be able to get through to all these people in our culture who are so hardened in their hearts against God? The two parables that we're looking at today are going to help us answer that question. The first one is the parable of the light on a lampstand. 
And the second we'll just call, since it's not a very widely recognized parable, I, I couldn't find a, a, a name that everybody calls it, but I call it the parable of the mysterious growing seed. These are really short parables found in the fourth chapter of, uh, of Mark. Mark didn't record most of the parables for us, but he did record these two. In fact, he's the only one to record the parable of the mysterious growing seed. And he put these two parables, these two very important parables, right on the heels of one of the most important parables, if not the most important parable, and that was the parable of the soils. If you remember from, uh, I think that was, the one we, that was the lesson we started with when we started doing the study of the parables. But you remember how the, the parable of the soils goes. Uh, seed gets thrown. It gets sown on, on different types of soil. It gets thrown on hard soil, the soil of a path, for example, and it never penetrates that soil because it's so compact. And so birds come down and they devour the seed before it can do anything, before it can even get into the earth. Then there's rocky soil, which prevents the seed from putting down roots. And so when the heat of the sun starts beating down, it doesn't have a strong enough root system to withstand the heat. And so it withers. It, it dies before it produces anything noteworthy. And then there's thorn-infested soil, which chokes out the competition. Any, any plant that, that grows up among thorns just gets trashed as it gets taller and taller, and so it doesn't have a chance to grow, and so it dies. And then there is the good soil. Fourth and finally, there's the good soil, which produces a good harvest, and then some. And we saw that this was a parable about the gospel. It's a parable about evangelism. Uh, what happens when you spread the gospel? When you evangelize? So I want to remind us of a valid application of that parable, but let me start by giving you an invalid application of that parable. Here's the invalid application of that, art, of that, of that parable, and that is we need to spend a lot of time working the soil before we put a seed into it. We need to spend a lot of time cultivating and preparing that soil before we do anything. And there's this thing today called friendship evangelism, which looks kind of like this. You, uh, you, say you get a, a new neighbor, and so you bring over a bunch of donuts or, or cupcakes, and you ask them, can I mow your, la your lawn? And you do all this stuff, and you try to cultivate this relationship with them, and with the plan that eventually you'll... you'll Try to talk about Jesus with them in one way or another. But here's what happens. You develop the friendship. You don't want to offend them. You don't want to hurt their feelings. And so if you ever share the gospel with them, you share about half of it. You, 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 you hold back because you don't want to hurt that friendship. The right way to do it is to share the gospel and if their feelings are hurt, then come back with donuts or cupcakes or offer to mow their yard. But it should start with planting the seed. So an invalid application of the parable of the soils is that we need to spend all this time cultivating the soil. That is not what Jesus was teaching at all. You know, if you were a student of agriculture, you'd learn to look for soil that's optimal for producing a harvest. But Jesus is not telling us uh, to, to, to only plant gospel seeds with certain types of people or to only sow on different kinds of soil. No, he, he's saying, spread it generously. Spread it all over the place, generously. And so I have to be honest, I, I fear that 
This is exactly how far too many people think when they think about evangelism, that they need to start by cultivating the soil and preparing the soil. There's this idea that that we need to, to increase the odds of the seed producing a harvest, and we do that by harvest by, by preparing the soil first. But the reality is that in Jesus' day, everybody knew that if you scattered seed on the hard soil of a path, it wouldn't take root. And yet, the illustration that the, that the parable gives us is that the seed sower put seed on the soil that was too hard to take it. The point of the parable of the soils is that we are to plant seeds of the gospel generously, knowing that the seeds will not always take root. In fact, if all things are equal, only one in four seeds will take root and bear fruit. And I'm not saying that all things are equal, but if. If. Now, if I were to tell you that you would catch fish on one out of every four fishing trips on average, what would your attitude toward fishing be? It might seem like it wouldn't be worth all the work because it's a lot of work to go out and go fishing. The first option might be to say, well, you know, it's, it's just not worth the trouble, so I'm not going to do it. it may, or maybe your response would be to, to try to figure out how to increase the odds. Okay, one out of, out of every four. Let's look for something common in the one time that it works and, and apply that to the other times and, and increase my skills as a fisherman. But you, So you're thinking maybe the, the problem is one of statistics or, or, or strategy. And so you start thinking, well, I'll just tinker with the type of bait that I'm using or, or, or start studying the eating habits of the fish that I'm trying to catch all in an effort to increase the likelihood that you'll catch something. And this is yet another example of an invalid uh, application of the parable of the soils. So what was the valid application? It was simply this. Spread the gospel. Evangelize. Spread the gospel generously and without distinction. Hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, and good soil. But don't pay attention to the soil. Just pay attention to your job as a seed sower. So immediately after telling and explaining the parable of the soils, Jesus gives us the parable of the light on the lampstand. Let's look at that very briefly and see what it can teach us about spreading the good news of the gospel. So we're looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. It says, as, And he was saying to them, Jesus, as he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed. It is not brought to be put on the lampstand. Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. And then he ends it with this familiar saying that he would give. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So really, Jesus is illustrating something very practical by asking a really ridiculous question. We need to understand that when he does that, when he asks a ridiculous question, he's not mocking anyone. Rather, what he's doing is he's showing us how simple the concept really is. Who makes it complicated? (laughs) We do, right? We're the ones who make make it complicated, or, or, or we might. But the concept that Jesus is talking about isn't difficult to understand, although it might be a little difficult to swallow. And I'll explain what I mean in just a minute. But the ridiculous question that Jesus starts out by asking is whether you would 
by a lamp and put it under a lampstand or a basket or under a bed. In other words, if you bring a light home, it would be pointless to put it in a place where it can't serve its purpose. If you put it under a basket, what's going to happen? I mean, aside from burning down the basket, (laughs) you're not going to have the light. If you put it under your bed, what's going to happen? Your bed's going to burn, but uh, it's, it's not going to serve its purpose. It's not going to be able to illuminate. It's not going to help you see. It's not going to help you navigate around the room where the light is placed. I mean, what other purpose would a light have that, or a lamp have? That's what Jesus is asking. So Jesus is pointing out the obvious here. It's to be put on a lampstand in order that it can serve its purpose. Light, by its very nature, does what? It illuminates things that are in the darkness. It reveals what is in the darkness. Darkness is the absence of light, and light drives away the darkness. We also know that light in Scripture very often represents truth. And that's going to be very uh, important for us to understand when we get to our study of John in a couple months, because one of, the, one of the big themes in the book of John is this contrast between light and darkness. For example, when does Nicodemus come to Jesus? In the darkness. He comes to Jesus in the darkness. So this is all very important for us to understand. Light often represents truth. And here in this parable, Jesus is telling us in very clear language that Just like if you have a light, you want to let it shine, you want to let it serve its purpose, in the same way, if you have truth, you need to hold it up. You need to let it serve its purpose, you need to hold it up, you need to expose it to the darkness. Or to use a metaphor from the parable of the soils, if you have seed, sow it. We also know that light in Scripture is often a metaphor for Scripture itself. Uh, Think about what uh, Psalm 119 says, Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is how you came to know Christ. This is how you came to be in union with Christ. If you're a Christian, someone somewhere was faithful to expose you to the light. Someone somewhere was in one way or another able to expose you to the truth of God's word, Right? It probably went something like this. They told you that you were a sinner. You needed to believe in Jesus because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And without Him, nobody goes to the Father. And so salvation is only found through Jesus. And if you wanted to be reconciled to God, you had to believe in Jesus. If you're a Christian today, that's what happened. You did. You you believed in Jesus. You received the good news. And the light drove away the darkness of your heart. You put faith in Him. And so this is the challenge that we face. To do the same thing that was done to us. Expose the light. We're challenged to see how ridiculous it is. How absurd it is to have the light. That is, to know the truth. To believe the truth. To be in the truth. To have the truth. It's ridiculous to to have it and yet to conceal it instead of revealing it, to hoard it, to keep it to ourselves. I mean, we all see how absurd the concept is here, right? And it's equally absurd, it's equally ridiculous when it comes to the gospel. 
So this parable follows very closely with the parable of the soils. The application is virtually identical. Sow gospel seeds with exceeding generosity and without regard for distinctions among soil types. Let your light shine. Live by the truth. Expose the darkness to the truth. Hold it up and let it do its job in your life. See, inherent to the idea of of having a light or possessing the truth of God's Word is living by it, holding it up, and using it. So we want to let the light of the Gospel be clearly seen in our lives. And there's part of me that thinks that one of the reasons Jesus even told this parable, it, it, it should be obvious, right? It should be obvious. But one of the reasons that Jesus told this parable is because He knew that we would be inclined to hide the light. Or, or at the very least, to be selective about where we shine it. But Jesus is confronting that inclination that we might have. In a way, he, he's, he's rebuking it by likening it to the absurd idea of putting a light underneath a basket or underneath your bed. You might remember how Jesus talked about His people being a light in the darkness in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Remember that? Uh, he, he preaches the, uh, the same parable. Listen to what He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14-16. to 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men. This is the important part. This is the application. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't it interesting the way that Jesus says that? He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify the Father. It would seem that the idea here is that there's a way to shine your light before men in such a way that they see your good works, and the result is not that they glorify God, but that they think more highly of you, or that they glorify you. See, your good works shouldn't point to you. Your good works shouldn't cause people to glorify you. They should, they should cause people to, to turn to God. But in a day of social media where people are counting their followers and with the proliferation of virtue signaling in our day and age, there's a lot of this going on. Saying good things, saying the right things, doing good things, doing the right things, but all with the wrong motivation. People doing the right thing, but a lot of people are doing it in a way that draws attention to themselves and gives glory to themselves. No, the reason that God gives us the truth. The reason God gives you light is so that you can share it with others and do so generously. Make the most of the opportunities that God provides for you in your everyday life, wherever that may be, whether it's at home, definitely with your kids, or at work, or in your friendships. Make the most of the opportunities God grants you. That's the meaning and the application of this first parable. And who is it directed to? To anyone who has ears to hear. That's a phrase that refers to people called by God, effectually called by God. 
who have ears to hear because God has granted them ears to hear. Now between this parable and the parable of the mysterious growing seed, or whatever you want to call it, Jesus has a very interesting saying. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me. Mark chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, it says this, And He was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. You see the first thing that Jesus says there? In verse 24, Be careful of what you listen to. Take care what you listen to. How does the Bible say that faith starts? Or how does the Bible say that faith uh, comes about in a person? By hearing, right? Faith comes by hearing. And so it's very important not only that we hear, but that we be very selective with what we listen to. And in an age where there is just a proliferation of garbage being preached in so many places, so many diversions from the Bible, so many deviations from the pure gospel message, so many who are willing to water down the message, so many who are really just professional cheerleaders or life coaches or social activists, this is more relevant today than than maybe ever, I have to imagine. Be very careful what you listen to. But how does this fit into the context? I mean, aren't we talking about sowing seeds and letting light shine and, and so on? What does listening have to do with sowing or with letting your light shine before men? And the answer is, is actually remarkably simple. I think you can even probably memorize it because it's only four words. It works like this. Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. And, and we see how this works with um, music, for example. If you listen to music that uh, is all about me, guess what? You're going to think that it's really all about you. If you listen to music that has a lot of profanity in it, right? eventually those words are going to become part of your vocabulary. Garbage in, garbage out. If you fill your mind, likewise, if you fill your mind with garbage... That's what's going to come out. If you fill your mind with false teaching, you're like a sower who fills his bag with seeds that are just weeds. Bad seeds. But if you're listening to something good, if you're listening to faithful Bible teaching, it is not garbage in, garbage out. It's gospel in, gospel out. So that's why Jesus is warning us to be very careful about what we listen to. And then he says something kind of confusing. He says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. Okay, now he's going back to sowing, because this is like an agricultural idea. The point here is that you reap what you sow. Do you love and and believe the gospel? Do, Do you love and believe the Word of God? Do you have a desire to obey what you hear? I mean, that's the point of subjecting yourself to good teaching is to, 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 to love it and to desire to obey it and walk in it. 
And you've probably seen this play out in your life. And in, in fact, I hope you have. If you, if you love the Word of God, you, you hear uh, solid, uh, doctrinally sound teaching, and it's like pouring oil on the flame of your heart. You know what I'm talking about? Where you, you hear something good and you're like, yes, this is so convicting. This is just, this is destroying me and I love it. Don't you love that? And, and that's the way it works for, for, uh, for some people sometimes. But for those who don't love the Word of God, they can hear the exact same sermon that set your heart ablaze, the same exact teaching, and be bored to tears by it. And I've seen it happen. It happens all the time. For the person who listens, and and maybe some people, they just want to find faults with the pastor. They want to find errors in, uh, in his personal life. Um, Let me tell you something. You'll find plenty You'll find plenty. You know, if you're looking for grammatical slip-ups or a place where he messes up names, you know, you, you can you can find that. Trust me on that. You know, every pastor has as many personal faults and personal flaws as anyone else. So it's not hard to find those in a pastor's preaching. But for the person who listens and, and wants to be fed and loves the word of God and loves obeying what they hear they'll get out of that teaching what they want to get out of that teaching, what they're hoping to get out of that teaching. Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And guess what? It's the same aroma. But different people interpret it differently. One says, oh, I love this. This is the aroma of Christ. The other says, oh, I hate it. This is the aroma of Christ. Now take that principle and apply it to what Jesus says next. He says, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever has what? Seed. You know, good seed. Light. Right, the, the good and pure seed of the Gospel. Whoever has this to that person, God will give more. But to, whoever, but to whoever doesn't have the light, whoever doesn't have the truth, doesn't love the truth, doesn't love God's Word, doesn't want to heed God's Word, doesn't want to obey or walk in God's Word, they're going to lose that and they're going to lose everything else beside. Because that person is condemned. So the point is pretty simple. Listen to the truth of God's Word. Be careful what you listen to. Make sure it's the Word of God. And you do that by cross-referencing what the pastor is saying with what your Bible says. Listen to the truth of God's Word. Love the truth of God's Word. And heed, obey the truth of God's Word. And you'll be all the more blessed because of it. You'll find more joy in it. You'll find more fulfillment in it. This is why somebody can say, oh, this this passage is absolutely destroying me and I love it. So we fill up with what we love and we spread it faithfully and generously. But at this point, Jesus still hasn't addressed another issue. And that is the issue of tinkering with the proverbial seed or, or bait or gospel. He's touched on it indirectly because it's the antithesis of good gospel teaching, but he hasn't really addressed it in a direct sense. See, in Jesus' day, they they never would have dreamed of 
the type of science we have today where, you know, there's genetic engineering and you can make a seed, you know, you can stack the odds so greatly in your favor with genetic engineering. It's, it's crazy. Today, you know, you want to increase the odds that you'll produce a harvest? No problem. We can do that. Science has ways to make that happen, although it wouldn't naturally happen. And so we can increase the odds that you'll get a good harvest these days. But if we take that same concept, we might be tempted to do the same with the gospel. And we can imagine the rationale behind it. We can understand why people would want to have a greater success rate when they go out and preach the gospel. Number one, they they don't like rejection, right? Nobody likes rejection. But more importantly than that, we understand that souls are on the line, right? We understand that the gospel is really a matter of life and death. Those who believe are are saved, and, and faith comes by hearing. So we want them to hear. We, we, and we want them, we, yes, we, we absolutely want people to be saved. In fact, I would say that you know, if, if there's somebody who doesn't want to see people get saved, I would have to question whether that person is saved. But let me give you one very good reason not to tinker with the gospel before we continue. One very good reason not to tinker with the gospel is that it is not ours to tinker with. The gospel is God's good news of salvation. It's not like an app that can and should be updated on a regular basis to serve your needs better. No, the only thing that you can do by tinkering with the gospel is make it worse. If you add to it, you have legalism, and that's bad. You make it worse. If you, if you uh, take away from it, that's called antinomianism. It's a heresy. Uh, you, you make it worse either way, whether you add to it or take away from it. Let me give you an illustration. You know, I, I don't really follow sports cards anymore, but once upon a time I, I used to. Um, but, but think of it kind of like a, a sports card. Back in the day when, when I you know, was, was collecting sports cards, the best card that you could have was Michael Jordan's rookie card. You guys remember how great Michael Jordan was? I mean, he was fantastic. He was a great player, and, and his, his rookie card was, was really, really rare. But there were tons and tons of counterfeits on the market. And so if you bought one, you would usually send it into to a company to have it graded to make sure that it was the real deal. But imagine that you have a friend who has the real deal. And he gives it to you to to borrow, to admire, to display, you know, whatever. He lets you borrow it for a time. And you think, you know, this card, what it really needs is for Michael Jordan to stand out more. And so you take a Sharpie and you start filling in all the space around him so that the image of Michael Jordan really stands out. You know what you just did? (laughs) You tried to make the card better by adding to it. And you destroyed it. Or imagine saying to yourself, you know, this card would be better if it was, uh, if it was shaped like a basketball or something. And, and so you, you take your scissors and, and you cut around the, the corners, you round it out. But again, what have you done? You've ruined it. You, you took away from it and you destroyed it in the process. And it wasn't even yours to alter. Remember, this is a friend's card. The only thing that you can do by altering it in any way is to lessen it in the same is true of the gospel. The gospel is God's, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's not ours to tinker with, 
It's not ours to try to improve. It's already as good as it can possibly be. It's like a gold that you cannot refine any further. As we've collected good seed and pure light, so we must spread good seed. Gospel in, Gospel out. It's an issue of faithfulness. See, the church in our day and age, there's a, there's a tendency that we have to be very focused on results. And yes, we do want to see results, but that can't be our priority. That can't be our first focus. Because if you focus first and foremost on results, it causes us to focus on what causes the best results or what influences the results. But how many of you know, and this is important, how many of you know that the result of our gospel labors isn't ours? The results aren't ours. The results don't reflect on us. We don't influence the results. There's a very real possibility that people will focus so much on the soil and only cultivate, you know, cultivating and only spreading it on a certain type of soil that they'll forget that the results are ultimately in God's hands. And so they won't feel sufficient for the work. They'll say, well, I need to get better at my gospel presentation. I need to get better at understanding the objections that somebody might have. I need to get better at responding to, to this or that argument. But the results aren't in our hands. It's okay to say, I don't have an answer to your question. I don't know. Let me go talk to somebody. Let me talk to my pastor, and I'll, I'll come back to you, and let's have another discussion. But this is what Jesus wants to assure us of with the parable of the mysterious growing seed, is that the results aren't in our hands. Let's, let's read this parable together. Uh, let's read it. Verses 26 to 29, if you have your Bible with you. It says, And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. Right? There we go. A reference to the parable of the soils. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts, it in, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It's good for us to be mindful of what this is teaching us. It's good to be reminded of the fact that salvation is a work that belongs entirely to the Lord. We play a part in that, in, in spreading the seed, but the results are up to Him. And this is the parable, uh, this is what this parable is, is all about. A farmer plants a seed, and what does he do? He goes to sleep. <laughs> you know what you can't, you know what would, would prevent you from sleeping? Worrying about it. Worrying about it. Having anxiety about whether you planted it deep enough or whether you planted it on good soil or bad soil. No, he just goes to sleep. And when he wakes up, there's signs of life. How? How did he do it? He didn't. He doesn't know how it happened. So there's an aspect of mystery to it. He, he doesn't know how it grew. All he knows is he planted a seed. Did he make it grow? No. He, he couldn't make it grow because he doesn't even know how it grew. He just did his part. And his part was planting the seed. And it was God who did the rest, producing a harvest from it. In the same way, friends, what are we 
responsible for. First of all, who are we in this parable? We're the farmer, right? We're, we're the one who plants the seed. What are we responsible for? Spreading good seed. Be careful what you listen to because garbage in, garbage out, or gospel in, gospel out. But we're just responsible for sharing the good news. Remember, gospel in, gospel out. We're responsible for spreading good seed, for making our light shine in the darkness. But just like the farmer isn't the one who's responsible for the seed producing a crop, we aren't responsible for the results of our seed sowing. Our job is just to be faithful to sow generously, to shine our light abundantly, faithful to evangelize. But the results of our heralding the gospel, the results of our preaching and proclaiming are not ours to worry about. And this is where having some, some good, the, uh, good theology comes into play. You know, once upon a time, I think I, I could say I honestly took the burden upon myself of thinking that if I could just convince someone to, to you know, that the answers are all there, they would have to believe the gospel. Let me tell you, if you have that mindset, there is no time for sleeping. The results aren't ours. And, and, and Scripture is, is very clear about this. The results of our labor for the Gospel are not in our hands. We can't make somebody believe. Because we can't remove the veil from someone's heart. We can't turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Turn with me to the book of, um, of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians has quite a bit to say about this. We're looking at 2 Corinthians. We'll start in chapter 2. First, let's look at what he says at the end of chapter 2. In verse 17, he says this, For we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity. See the contrast there? A sincere heart doesn't peddle the Word of God. But we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This word peddling should almost make us laugh, right? I mean, if, if you were to look in, in uh, you know, a, a Greek lexicon, uh, the word peddling is actually derived, derived from the Greek word, which means huckster, huckster. So he's saying we, we aren't interested in corrupting God's Word. We don't need to change God's Word in order that we might get results. No, we speak as from God. How can he even say that? How can he say we speak as from God? Because he hasn't changed it. The message that came from God is the message that he passes on. He's only sharing the good news as he received it. And he's doing it without changing it. Turn to chapter 3. In chapter 3, uh, Paul's reminding us of the reaction of the Israelites when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. You remember what their reaction was? His face was, was glowing so brightly the people couldn't bear to, to look at his face, and so they begged him to, to put a veil over his face. Okay, look down at chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 12. Paul says this. He says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. 
But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that hardness of heart is what prevents somebody from believing the gospel. And only Jesus can change that. Only Jesus can remove the veil of the heart. And so here's this tendency that we have. We have this tendency to say, okay, God is sovereign over salvation, right? That's a true statement. And so we say, okay, so I'm just going to back away and God can just do his work. But that's not the way it works because the God who has sovereignly ordained salvation has also ordained the means to the end. He's also ordained how a person will be saved. And his means of a person being saved is by hearing by somebody preaching the gospel to them. And so we have to remain steadfast in our commitment to doing that. So Paul doesn't alter the message. Rather, he can proclaim the gospel with boldness and clarity, knowing that the results are God's. Because we can't deal with the hardness of a person's heart. But God can. And God does. And so there's hope. Let's look at chapter 4, verses 1-6. to He says, therefore, so conclude, there's a kind of a, a finality here, a conclusion that he's drawing. Therefore, since we have this ministry of preaching the gospel, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, this is talking about Satan, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So think back to what he said there. Think back to what he said in, in, in uh, chapter 3 in the, verse, in the passage that we looked at. We don't change the gospel. We don't adulterate the gospel. We don't water it down. We don't, we don't tinker with it. Because all we can deal with is a person's mind, right? All we can do is gospel in for a person. What, what happens with that? It's not in our hands. Rebellion is a heart issue, and only God can shine the light of truth into a person's heart. Only God can replace the heart of stone with the heart of living flesh, right? Right? And so, yes, we want to be winsome. We want to be compassionate. We want to see people believe. And thus, yes, we should be gracious with them in, our, in the way that we approach the gospel with them. But we have to understand that, really, we can only do so much. We can only do what God has assigned us to do. And beyond that, we have to trust the results in God's hands. Think back to what Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians. He said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 
So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So God causes the growth. And because God's the one who causes the growth, God's the one who gets the glory. So let me encourage you today. If you're tired of sowing seeds, and you feel like you're, you, you've only been sowing on hard soil or, or rocky soil or, or thorny soil, and it's really easy for us to feel like this is all we're doing when we evangelize because we're not seeing any results. Let me encourage you not to grow weary or grow discouraged. God sees your faithfulness and He will honor your faithfulness. God doesn't hand out trophies for who has the best results. What God cares about is our faithfulness and us persevering in our faith and persevering in our faithfulness to do what He's called us to do. So if you're weary, if you're just worn out from dealing with weeds, let me conclude by encouraging you with two verses, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. One from the Old Testament, Isaiah 55.11. God makes this promise. He says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And you need to know that God means what He says here. His word will accomplish all the purposes that He has intended for it to accomplish. And that was Paul's basis, by the way, for speaking boldly and for not even feeling like he needed to, to you know, fancy up his language for the Corinthians. He had confidence in this promise. And we should too. The second verse I want to share with you is from Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul says, Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Friends, it's good for us to evangelize. It's good for us to reach out. But we have to do it with the understanding that there's a chance that we might never see anything become of it. But that's not ours to gauge anyway or to worry about anyway. The results belong to God. So that can't be what drives us. We can't be results-driven in our evangelism. Love for Christ. Love for His Word. And, and in an unshakable and unwavering confidence that His sheep will hear His voice as He said. Let those things motivate our faith, faithfulness in evangelizing and in participating in the Great Commission with patience and with endurance. So let's end by, by revisiting the question that we started with. How are we supposed to impact a world that's filled with people whose hearts are so hardened toward God? Sow the seeds of the gospel. Do it generously. Especially with your kids, your parents. And let your light shine brightly. And know, believe, that God will accomplish His purposes through your faithfulness to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Most blessed Father, we thank You that You saw the darkness of our hearts. And just as You spoke light into being, 
you brought light into our hearts, into the darkness of our hearts. You drove out the darkness, and you continue to drive out the darkness with the truth of your word. And so our prayer, Father, is that our motivations would be pure and that we would be encouraged, prepared, and eager for every good work you have ordained in our lives. That Christ would be glorified. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your promises and for the encouragement that we can gather from your word when we become weary of doing good works, when we become weary of things like rejection. Father, thank you that you have gone with us. You have filled us with the Holy Spirit who equips us, who convicts us, who leads us in order that we may grow in the likeness of Christ as we participate in the Great Commission. We do pray for a great harvest, Lord, but we trust that the results are in your hands for the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.